it's remarkable in a world of horrible news and often horrible nuclear news. It's quite a sea change to have even a tiny glimmer of some positive signs. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. In early November, the United States and China held their first talks on nuclear security and arms control since 2019. The talks came ahead of a much-anticipated meeting between President Biden and President Xi in San Francisco. There were no tangible outcomes from these initial nuclear security talks. But the fact that they happened at all is a sign of progress, according to my guest today, Rachel Elizabeth Whitlark. She is an associate professor in the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at the Georgia Institute of Technology and a non-resident senior fellow in the forward defense practice of the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. She is also author of the book, All Options on the Table, Leaders, Preventative War, and Nuclear Proliferation, which includes archival research on how past U.S. administrations approached the Chinese nuclear program. And as you will see from our conversation, that history is instructive for understanding why China may be seeking to expand its nuclear program today. This episode was supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. If you're with a nonprofit, philanthropy, or are in a position to support episodes relevant to the international affairs, humanitarian, and global development communities, please reach out to me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I'd love to chat. And if you are listening to this contemporaneously, I will be attending the Halifax International Security Forum the weekend of November 19th. If you're there, come say hi. I'd love to meet up. Now here is my conversation with Rachel Elizabeth Whitlark. So ahead of an anticipated Biden-Xi meeting in San Francisco, the United States and China held their first bilateral nuclear security talk since 2019. I want to get into the substance of those talks, such as we know it, 
But before we get there, I'd like to go over some important history first, which I think sets some key context for understanding those talks. So let's go briefly back to the 1960s. Can you tell me what you uncovered about the Kennedy administration's approach to China's nascent nuclear weapons program? Absolutely. So in my book, which is entitled All Options on the Table, what I do is I investigate and compare two successive American presidents, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson, and I examine their approach to the development of what was at the time the nascent communist Chinese nuclear program. Um, And what I do in this book on the Chinese nuclear program and the other cases of attempted or successful nuclear proliferation that I explore is I look at how these two leaders had very different views on nuclear matters generally, and specifically about uh, how the United States should act to try to stop China from acquiring nuclear weapons. And what that meant in practice was that Kennedy was very, very concerned about the spread of nuclear weapons and materials generally in the international system. And he was specifically threatened by the potential acquisition by the communist Chinese of nuclear weapons and took very serious consideration and made significant progress while he was president towards the use of military force to try to actually stop China from acquiring nuclear weapons. And so this isn't widely known history that the Kennedy administration very deeply considered a military strike against the nascent Chinese nuclear program in the early 1960s. This is just like not well known. Not well known. I mean, I think there are some of us nuclear nerds out there who are maybe familiar with the story, but I'll even give you my favorite anecdote from this period, which comes from, again, the Kennedy administration. And in particular, the fact that in 1962, just after the Cuban Missile Crisis had happened, right, so we're at the height of the Cold War, Kennedy sends the U.S. ambassador, his ambassador Avril Harriman, to Moscow to talk to none other than Nikita Khrushchev, right, the Soviet premier, about the possibility of joint U.S.-Soviet military action to try to target the communist Chinese nuclear program. When I learned that, it kind of blew my mind especially thinking about this happening just in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Sworn enemies, the United States and the Soviet Union. And Kennedy was so engaged on and nervous about the possibility of the communist Chinese acquiring nuclear weapons that he wanted to talk to the Soviet Union about the possibility of joint cooperation, military cooperation on the matter. Khrushchev wasn't interested, so Kennedy continued on his own. But that really brought to, I think, the foreground how seriously Kennedy was concerned about and engaged on trying to stop this acquisition. So that anecdote is really instructive because, you know, Kennedy was obviously assassinated in 1963. The Chinese detonated their first nuclear weapon in 1964, I believe. And Presumably, the reason that the Chinese Communist Party at the time sought to acquire nuclear weapons was not just to deter the United States, but also the Soviet Union. Is that sort of the consensus view of the nuclear security community? I think it's primarily a story of the United States, in as much as we, at least to the Chinese mind, 
you know, the United States was a threatening actor. So I think it's fair to say that the motivation initially for the communist Chinese nuclear program was the United States. I mean, think back to when we actually have to go back to the 50s to tell the origin story here. You know, the Chinese were motivated by, I would say, multiple threats that the United States had made explicit and more implicit to use nuclear weapons against China to achieve a variety of U.S. foreign policy goals. So in 1950, during the Korean War, President Truman orders nuclear-capable bombs to the region to try to deter the Chinese from entering the conflict in the first place. Later, President Eisenhower in 52 hints that the United States would use nuclear weapons against China, you know, if negotiated talks failed to reach a negotiated conclusion. There were multiple nuclear threats from various high-level military figures in the United States during the Taiwan Straits crises later in the decade. So I think it's fair to say that the United States was part of China's original motivation to acquire nuclear weapons. And it's also worth noting that especially early in the communist Chinese pursuit of nuclear weapons, the Soviets were actually helping them. The United States didn't realize this until later, right? Our intelligence at the time wasn't terribly great on what the Chinese were up to, but the Soviets were actively helping the Chinese on their program. So they were sharing knowledge and technical expertise in return, the Chinese were sending some important materials back to the Soviets. So there was significant engagement and assistance early in the story of the Chinese program. Now, if you know your Sino-Soviet history, that relationship is going to sour as we get to the end of the 1950s and ultimately 59-60 with the Sino-Soviet split. So the assistance from the Soviets stops. They withheld actual plans for bomb design that they were supposed to have shared with the Chinese. But the Chinese then became individually committed to continue their own pursuit of nuclear weapons. And frankly, these are weapons that are helpful for security. So if you want to defend yourself against the United States and the Soviet Union, you know, you have that capacity once you have acquired nuclear weapons. You know, the other thing I want to say is that the Americans were not really in the loop I might say, or we had lousy intelligence at the time about the continued development of the program. Like our intelligence community estimated that the Chinese wouldn't have the necessary technical capacity. They wouldn't have the materials that they would need to acquire nuclear weapons. And we thought that especially, you know, early in their development as a state, that the Chinese wouldn't be committed to expending, you know, the significant resources and personnel and material to the nuclear program and take those resources away from growing their economy and, you know, developing the rest of their military apparatus writ large. But frankly, across the board, the U.S. intelligence community was surprised. And we were surprised by how quickly the Chinese got to their first test, which you rightly said was in October of 1964. So the Chinese essentially developed their nuclear weapons program in order to not be kind of pushed around, provoked by the United States, and also presumably to deter the United States from wielding its nuclear weapons against China. And, you know, it's my understanding that for most of the history of China's nuclear program until relatively recently, the kind of doctrine that they used was one of minimal deterrence. They didn't seek this kind of massive buildup in arms like we saw both in the United States and the Soviet Union, rather just sought 
a relatively few number of nuclear weapons, enough to deter the United States from you know, provoking in any meaningful way. Is that like a fair characterization of most of the history of China's nuclear weapons program? Definitely. I think that's exactly right. I think most experts have agreed and the Chinese themselves have said that their interests were in maintaining a minimum nuclear deterrent, right? A small arsenal that was simply sufficient to respond in retaliation should they be on the receiving end of a nuclear attack, right? And the purpose of such a policy of a minimum nuclear deterrent is to actually prevent those attacks from happening in the first place. They have also had what we call a no first use policy, where they have at least asserted that they have a no first use policy, where they would not be the ones to introduce nuclear weapons into a conflict, but instead would only use them in retaliation. And there are real questions right now in government circles and in the adjacent policy communities, you know, in the United States and elsewhere, wondering if China is going to continue with such a minimum deterrent policy or move in the future to something else. Well, let's talk about that because as of now, the best estimates I've read is that China has about 500 nuclear weapons with the potential aspiration, according to U.S. intelligence, of breaching over a thousand, I think I said 1,300-ish in the next several years. What accounts in your mind for this seemingly rapid expansion of China's nuclear weapons capabilities? So this is a huge topic of debate, you know, in terms of, you know, what China watchers and what, you know, the brightest minds inside and around the U.S. government and our allies in East Asia and elsewhere are currently trying to figure out. And I think the bottom line is that we don't have a clear answer on what is driving the Chinese modernization at present. And, you know, the numbers that I have read are the same ones that you have read, you know, working from the estimates, at least the publicly available estimates from the Defense Department. And I think there's a variety of potential motivations that we might articulate. You know, I have heard, you know, some experts say that part of this modernization is simply about getting closer to, but not necessarily exactly to parity with Russia and the United States, though it's worth noting that even if they get up to the 1500 levels or 1300 levels that some of the estimates are suggesting could be happening by, you know, 2035, they would still have fewer, far fewer than the 4500 or so or 37 or 3800 deployed weapons that the United States and the Russians have. So, you know, there's a limit, I think, to how far the pursuit of parity with the United States and Russia can go. I think perhaps more important is that instead of numerical parity, this modernization could be understood as trying to demonstrate in the nuclear field that China is a strong nuclear power that should be considered in conversation with the other existing strong nuclear powers, namely Russia and China, but also the other members of the Security Council, you know, especially to the extent that arms control treaties and negotiations up till now have generally simply included the United States and Russia and not the Chinese, you know, perhaps we can understand this development that the Chinese are undertaking as, you know, wanting to be part of the conversation and working to grow their own arsenal 
to be more in line with those of the other nuclear actors. You know, there are other arguments too. Some say that the modernization from the Chinese is a reaction to things that the United States has done. So in particular, advancements in U.S. missile defense capabilities that were seen to potentially reduce the retaliatory capability that the Chinese have historically maintained. You know, if they feel insecure because of those advancement in U.S. technical capacity, you could imagine that this modernization could be a move to try to rectify that insecurity. There's also been a lot of hostility in the U.S.-China relationship, you know, over the last administration and a half. And so we could, again, understand that these moves might be intended to sort of augment their security or their perception of security in that hostile relationship. You know, lastly, I would say that there's an argument in the community that we should understand nuclear steps as not necessarily reflecting politics or the tensions in the relationship, but rather the notion in China that these nuclear weapons are helpful in the story of the decline of the West and the United States in particular and the rise of the East. So we can understand, you know, a more civilizational or hegemonic power transition story where if this is the start of the decline of the West, you know, they are growing their arsenal as part of their approach to the rise of them and the East writ large. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of answers, I, I think, to my question then, and, and all of them plausible, all of them probably serve to a certain extent to explain why it is that China is seeking to expand its nuclear weapons program. But you know, the fact of the matter is all of those inputs have led to the fact that you know, China's nuclear weapons program has expanded profoundly in recent years and may expand even more in the future. And I think that leads to U.S.-China bilateral talks. You know, there has been never a bilateral nuclear security agreement between the United States and China. This is, you know, as opposed to the United States and the Soviet Union, the United States and Russia, which has had over the years several bilateral talks and agreements, although none currently exist after last year. So what do we know about what these initial talks have included? And these talks that happened recently and in early November are the first since 2019. Not much public out there about it, but what do we know that is public? The first thing I want to say is it's remarkable in a world of horrible news and often horrible nuclear news. It's quite a sea change to have even a tiny glimmer of some positive signs in the nuclear portfolio. And I would put even the little that we know so far about these recent discussions sort of in that category of potentially good news. So at least what I've seen publicly discussed is that there was a meeting earlier this week between the Assistant Secretary of State, Mallory Stewart, and her Chinese counterpart on some arms control and nuclear non-proliferation discussions. These conversations were described by the United States as constructive, and it seems as though they focused on the need to open and maintain channels of communication between the United States and the Chinese and work to responsibly manage the bilateral relationship. You know, previously, there hasn't been much in terms of transparency or substantive engagement, really, if any, on practical matters to help us 
manage and reduce the myriad risks that exist in the nuclear and space domains. And so, you know, the news is suggesting there were constructive conversations that were geared towards promoting stability, strategic stability in the relationship, helping to one day avoid arms racing dynamics and manage the competition between the United States and China so that it doesn't become a broader conflict. And I think it's worth saying out loud that we can think of this development as part of, you know, seemingly the news that we have seen in recent weeks and months, joining the sort of growing high level engagements that the Biden administration is having on a variety of substantive areas with China. So we've seen Secretary of State Blinken and National Security Advisor Sullivan, Commerce Secretary Raimondo and others, you know, engaging on security and also economic conversations with their Chinese counterparts. So so I think we can understand this particular arms control and nonproliferation meeting sort of in that broader context of U.S. and China talking more about these important matters. Yeah, I, I mean, this comes after like a nadir in relations following the spy balloon incident. But since then, there has been this sort of easing of, of tensions, including the visits you mentioned. Also, I'd add Janet Yellen visited Beijing as well. And that all kind of contributes to this moment we're in now, which frankly might be fleeting, but we are in this moment in which there is an easing of relations, of tensions between the United States and China. And I think that's obviously, you know, contributing to the fact that Biden and Xi are anticipated to meet in San Francisco. And these nuclear talks were, I think, a consequence of the fact that the leaders agreed to meet. And this is just kind of one thing on the portfolio, among others, like environment and climate change issues. I mean, do you foresee there to be a potential arms control agreement between China and the United States? Obviously, not anytime soon. But if there is one, what are some of the key asks from both sides that you foresee being key points in a potential agreement if we ever get there? So I think I would say, you know, in the near term, as near term as next week, you know, the meeting in San Francisco that you mentioned, you know, my hope is that that is going to offer more concrete news and sort of elaboration of some of the things that I hope are going to happen sort of immediately. You know, we've heard noise about the two parties being open to the possibility of military to military communication. You know, we don't have a direct line of communication or an, at least an active direct line of communication between Washington and Beijing. And I think even if we got news about concrete steps in that small vein, that would be progress. And I think the way that I'm inclined to think about arms control generally is that even if these small steps can actually beget more meaningful steps in the future. So for many reasons, I'm, I'm sort of suspicious that the current environment is one that is going to be inclined towards any real major substantive conversations, you know, at the treaty level or big agreement level between the United States and the Chinese, and certainly not between the United States and the Chinese and the Russians. I just don't think, given everything else going on in the world, that the time is now. But my hope is that, you know, as time goes on, there will be more meaningful conversations that can serve to maybe concretize the rules of the road 
for example, where the cyber domain meets the nuclear domain, or to have some common understandings uh, about how you know we're approaching autonomous capabilities in as much as they could interact with or interfere in the nuclear domain. So I think we would benefit greatly from having some productive conversations on those matters. Longer term, you know, it's not clear to me that there's any conversation that could happen that would successfully cause the Chinese to roll back their nuclear program, certainly not in the near term. But I would be inclined to think favorably about really anything that can help mitigate, you know, the worst escalation risks or opportunities for mistakes, dangerous mistakes to to be made. More broadly, I think there is hope to one day include China in broader discussions about disarmament or just general information sharing between and across the permanent five members of the Security Council, all of whom have nuclear weapons, you know, I think we could benefit from more dialogue, more risk reduction, information sharing and verification mechanisms across all parties, sort of in line with what the United States and Russia had before the contemporary period. So maybe my expectations are, are sort of managed, but my hope is that we'll be able to see progress in some of these directions, hopefully at some point in the future. Yeah, I mean, based on what you're saying, I mean, it seems to me that having talks for the sake of having talks itself is, in fact, a good thing in this context, just because there has been such little dialogue between the Chinese and the United States on nuclear issues. You know, this is in contrast to like decades and decades of talks between the United States and the Soviet Union and Russia. So you kind of like understand each other and, and have certain points of reference, whereas with the Chinese, there has been just so little dialogue that the risk of misunderstanding is so high. Just having these talks in the first place is itself a win in the nuclear security context. I totally agree. I mean, just having those conversations and identifying counterparts and being humans in the room talking about these important matters, you know, even if there's not some treaty at the end of the day, to my mind, exactly as you said, is very important in and of itself. There is so much room for misperception and so much possibility for accidents and escalations. And the last thing we want to be doing is stumbling inadvertently to a nuclear exchange. And I think the Chinese would wholeheartedly agree with that perspective. So if we only think of arms control and progress in the nuclear domain as coming in the forms of, you know, capital T treaties that need Senate ratification and the rest, you know, I think we're missing a lot of really, really important stuff that hopefully will set the stage for those kind of events down the line. But there's a lot of meaningful work just communicating and having dialogues and working towards building an understanding of what the other is doing. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. 
Thank you.